everybody. There we go. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2. Get there real quick. As John said earlier, if you're new around here, we want to welcome you to Strong Tower. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, we're glad you can be with us today as we worship Jesus. Uh, it's a little bit of a, a strange weekend for us. Usually MLK weekend, we've got a big block party uh, tomorrow on Monday. We've had that the last, I don't know, five years or so. Uh, so it's a little strange having to cancel that for COVID, and, and um, I just want to encourage you, even though we're not having that, to celebrate this weekend. Find some other way to celebrate this weekend as we uh, rejoice in the legacy of Martin Luther King and what he means to our nation and uh, the good work that him and many, many others have done uh, through history. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it's, it's uh, an effective and, and appropriate text for this morning and as we celebrate uh, this weekend. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 is what we'll be reading today and uh, we're continuing our series called Renew the Vision. Renew the Vision. For there say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. It says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one, or in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Gospel and Family. Gospel and Family. Let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, we come to you this morning eager to hear what you have to say to us, to all of us in your word. We know that you speak by your word to our hearts, to change us, to mold us into the image of Christ. And so today, as we look at this text, we open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to hear, to see, to listen to what you have to say to us. And we pray, God, that you would get all the glory as you work through your word in us for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
in the movie The Born Identity, I don't know if anyone has seen it here, in, in that movie, Matt Damon plays a CIA agent by the name of Jason Bourne. And Jason Bourne has been experiencing amnesia and can't remember who he is in the beginning of the movie. He, he kind of awakens to this reality and he's running from the police, but he's not even sure why. And so as he's running through the, the you know, the mountains, the snowy mountains of Switzerland. He's, he's being chased by the police. He's going from place to place, and he jumps into a car with a young lady, and he tries to kind of keep his cool. He doesn't want anybody to know that he doesn't know who he is, and so he's kind of panicking but can't show his emotions. And as the panic gets worse and worse, and he starts to realize this is unsafe, and she can kind of tell something's wrong with him, he just kind of blurts it out. He says, I don't know who I am and I don't know where I'm going. And then he starts to share everything that he's been stressing about. This is what he says. I love this. Who has a safety deposit box full of money, six passports and a gun? I come in here and the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking for an exit. I can tell you the license plate number on all six cars outside. How can I know all that and not know who I am? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Right? It's, it's hard to know what to do if you don't know who you are. That, that's what he's saying. It, it's hard to know what to do in your life if you don't know who you are. And it's no different with churches. Right? It's true about us as individuals, but it's true about churches that many times churches have lots of activity but lack an identity. We have lots of things going on. We don't lack program after program, event after event. We've got all kinds of things happening. We've got ministries and outreaches and teams. And there's so many different things you can keep busy in a church. I mean, we keep busy with the best of them. But why? Have you ever asked yourself that? If, if you've been in the church a while and maybe you've served and you've done outreaches and you've done evangelism and you've, uh, you've helped people in need and you've been a part of a small group, you've been a part of the activity, you've been a part of the doing, but do you know why? Why do we do the things that God calls us to do? Why do we give up our comfort and our life that's you know, nice and neat and we enter into someone else's life that's messy and hard and complicated? Why would we do that kind of stuff? You, in other words, you, you can't know the what without the why, or eventually the what is going to suffer. Eventually, you're going to start asking yourself, why am I doing this anyways? Because it doesn't seem like it's worth it. Right? Any talk of mission eventually has to become talk about motives. It has to be motives. And so we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, this new series we're calling Renew the Vision. Somebody say, Renew the Vision. Renew the Vision. And we've been looking at how in the beginning of the year, we're, we're kind of resetting. And so if you're coming new to Strong Tower right now, this is a great time because this is kind of Strong Tower 101. This is back to the basics, back to the, the greatest hits, if you will. Like Ephesians 2 is one of the peaks in the Bible of some of the greatest texts that you'll see in all of Scripture. And we're not going to have time to go into the depth that's here. I mean, you could spend months in Ephesians 2. There's so much. But, but we're coming back to this question of what are we here to do? In the last two weeks, we've been talking about our mission statement. And our mission statement, our new mission statement is we make healthy disciples of Jesus 
who cultivate thriving communities. Right? We talked about how it's healthy disciples and thriving communities. We want to see personal transformation and community transformation. We want to see both together as a church. And so the first two weeks we looked at the mission, and now we're looking at the why. Why do we do what God has called us to do? And it really comes down to what we would call our five motives, which are gospel, family, humility, mercy, and justice. Gospel, family, humility, mercy, and justice. And so we're going to look at these five over the next few weeks, and today I want to cover the first two. I want to look at gospel and family because these two get down to the core of our identity. Who are we? Right? If we can't answer that question, who we are, then we'll never continue doing what God has called us to do. And so, how does our identity in Christ move us out on mission? It begins with, as always, the gospel. So if you're taking notes today, number one is the gospel. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, Therefore remember, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Here it is again. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I mean, Paul begins in this section of of Ephesians 2, he begins first by directly addressing the Gentiles. And if you're new to the Bible, the Gentiles are anybody who's not Jewish. The word literally means the nations, Right? So the nations, he's, he's speaking to the people who've come to Christ. He's saying, I want you to remember, first of all, who you were. I want you not to forget your testimony. Right? What's happening with the Gentiles is they had forgotten where they came from. They had forgotten where God had delivered them out of this terrible situation he describes. Right? He's, he's using strong language. He's saying, you were separated from God. You were strangers to the community of faith. You were set apart from from all the blessings of the promises and you didn't have what God uh, wanted for you in Christ. You had none of it. You had no hope. You had no, no future. You had nothing. That's who you were. Remember it, but now I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember that now... Everything has changed. And look at what he says in verse 13. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I mean, notice the stark contrast. We once were separated from Christ. Now I'm in Christ. We once were far off from Christ. Now I'm near to Him. Right? In other words, what he's saying is the gospel is more than simply God is going to forgive you and give you kind of a fresh start. I mean, this is the time of the year where people like to make resolutions, right? This is the fresh start of the year, and, and you think, okay, 2020 wasn't what I thought it was going to be. 2021 is my year. It's a fresh start, and I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. Well, just like you did five years ago and 10 years ago, and 15 years ago, and 35 years ago. I mean, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not God forgives your past, and now you get to try again. God is saying, this is a new identity. This is a new reality. And the new reality is that you are in Christ. 
It's a new location, if you will. Your life is no longer in you. Your life is hidden in Christ. That's who you are. That, that is what defines you. It's no longer an identity that you achieve. It's one that you receive by faith. We live, and this is what we say in our motive, we live in that freedom, that freedom and hope of God's love. That's how the gospel affects us. Martin Luther, uh, not King, but the original Martin Luther, if you will. Martin Luther, which, by the way, sidebar, I'll follow this rabbit trail for a second. Martin Luther King was actually, his, his first name, his birth name was Michael. I don't know if you all knew that. Michael and his dad renamed him Martin Luther after the reformer, the German reformer, after a trip to Germany. And so here he's named after this man who led the most... Uh, uh, I would call it a revival. I mean, the most incredible revival we've ever seen in history, and we call it the Reformation, 500 years ago. And his little church that he was preaching in and, and, and telling people this gospel news as he's leading this revival, people got tired of hearing it. People came to Martin Luther and they said, people from his church, they said, so uh, when are you going to stop preaching this gospel? Like, when, when are you going to move on to something deeper? When, when are you going to move on to something more practical? When are you going to stop talking about how we're sinners who are saved by Christ and Christ alone and that's who we are? When are you going to stop preaching this gospel? Martin Luther, I would imagine, with just this grin on his face, if you know the guy, he looks at them and he says, I'll stop preaching the gospel when you start living it. Because you walk in here every week after week after week and you don't look like someone who believes it. But that's, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying to the Gentiles, to the Jews right here, he's saying, I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to come back to who you were and now who you are. That, that's what it means to remember the gospel. It's to preach it to yourself every week, every day, every hour. And in order to do that, you have to remember who you were. You have to go back to your past and say, God, I look back and I see who I was before I knew you. And I see that my life was a wreck. I mean, some of you in here, you have a testimony where you say, if, if it wasn't for God, I'd be dead somewhere. If it wasn't for God, I'd be lost and chaotic. If it wasn't for God, I would be so consumed with myself, there wouldn't be anyone else in my life you got to look back at your life and you got to say, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2, he says, you were dead in your sin and trespasses. Dead. Not like I was injured and I needed a little bit of help. Not like I was sick and I could get better eventually. You were dead. Dead in your sin. But God raises the dead. And so what you were is no longer who you are. That's what Paul's saying. But now you are in Christ. It's an identity, like I said, that's not received or not achieved. It's, it's received. It's not achieved by your abilities, your status, even your intentions. It's an identity that's gifted to you by being in Christ. And those two words change everything in Christ. right? In you, it's sin and death. But in Christ, it's righteousness and life. In you, it's guilt and shame, but in Christ, it's freedom and hope. In you, it's failure and disappointment, but in Christ, it's victory and love. And that's your forever position. That's your forever status. God says if you put your faith in Christ, that changes 
the way I see you forever. And that takes discipline to remember that. Right? The reason this is our first motive is because it's the hardest to remember. The gospel. It seems so simple. But man, we, we struggle to live it. We struggle to live not in me, but in Christ. We struggle to get past the failure and disappointment and anxiety and fears and arrogance and all the things that define us in our sin without Jesus and to live in the freedom and hope of Him. And so it takes this daily repetition. I love how the psalmist says it. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. The psalmist is preaching the gospel to himself, to his own soul. He's saying, Bless the Lord, soul. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget, even in the depths of the pit, don't forget. He loves you. He's for you. He died in your place. He rose again in your place. He's coming again for you. He hasn't forgot about you. That's who you are. But this gospel identity also creates a corporate identity. And this is the next point. Uh, family. Look, look at verse 18. Go down to 18, what he says. He says, for through him, that's Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So first Paul deals with how the gospel affects us vertically, right? Now he, he goes to the horizontal effects of the gospel. And he, he starts to speak to the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and he's speaking into their hostile relationship. He's speaking to people who've hated each other for generations, for centuries. The Jews have looked at the Gentiles and said, they're unclean, they're, they're, they're people we can't be a part of. And, and some of them have gone so far to say they're, they're subhuman. They're, they're people that, that we don't even think should be uh, interacted with at all. We're, we're going to treat them as dogs. I mean, they would literally pray that in the temple on a regular basis. And then the Gentiles, of course, being treated like that, they look back at the Jews with the same hatred, the same suspicion, and so there's this hostility. In fact, uh, Paul even brings up one of their racial slurs. He says, you call the Gentiles the uncircumcision. That was speaking, he even says it, according to the flesh. It's speaking to their ethnic identity to say, I'm going to lower you down to this place that I want to shame you. That's the hostility that's happening here. And now they find themselves in the same church. They're in the same church. Richard Allen uh, was born into slavery in 1760 in Philadelphia. And Richard Allen, he went on to grow up to be a preacher, and he was traveling around with the Methodist church, and, and uh, he became such a, a well-known preacher that he was leading like these little camp meetings around the city of Philadelphia, and and he was, again, still a slave. And at the time, he led his owner to Christ. And so he leads his owner to Christ. And then his owner uh, realizes that this man has a gift and, and he needs to be freed. And so he frees Richard Allen to go preach the gospel. And he, he becomes a free man. And he joins this church, this white church, this large Methodist church called St. George Methodist Church in Philadelphia. And he's, he's leading kind of an outreach ministry, but he's reaching out mostly to black folks in the community. And he starts to lead people to Christ, and he brings people to the church. Now, St. George's, you know, it's a large, wealthy, white church. They didn't have 
any diversity. So they didn't have, in that time, this is the 1700s, they didn't have, or 1800s, they, they didn't have the, the, um, the rules, they didn't have the segregation laws because they didn't need them. There was no one there. But then Richard Allen starts bringing people. And it grows and it grows until about 10 to 15 percent of this congregation is now black. And the racial tension boils. And now where there wasn't a law, there suddenly becomes a law. And black people are forced to sit on the outskirts of the building of the sanctuary in folding chairs while white people sit in the middle in the pews. And so it comes to a prayer meeting one night and, and uh, Richard Allen is there and his associate Absalom Jones is there with them. And there's a group of black folks who come to the prayer meeting and they come down to the altar at the front to pray. And as they're praying, kneeled at the altar, they're in the white section. One of the ushers comes over, taps them on the shoulder and says, you need to leave. And if you don't leave now, we're going to force you to leave. And so Richard Allen and Absalom Jones stand up and walk out the back of the door with their crew and never to return. He walked out with that, that group of people and he said, we can't take it anymore. We've been enduring this for years. We got to start our own church. And so they founded what's called the African Methodist Episcopal Church or the AME Church. And it became the first black-led Christian denomination on American soil. And the black church in all its beauty was born as a miracle. I mean, I don't know if you know this, the black church is a miracle. But it was born out of white Christian racism. I mean, people today say, why is there a white church and a black church? Because of white Christian racism. That's the history. That, that's how it happened. That, that was the birth of the black church was us saying, I don't want you here. That, that's our history. That, that's even our reality today. But Paul says that's not our identity. It's not who we are. Paul says that out of the two enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles, God has created this one new reality this new identity, and he uses various metaphors here, I love it. He, he calls it a, a new humanity. He says it's like fellow citizens or, or even like a holy temple. But my favorite that he uses here is family. He says we're, we're the household of God. It may not look like it, but we are. We're family. Family made up of every nation. Family made up of former enemies, now family. This new corporate gospel identity is what we are motivated by. And so when we say family in our core motives, what we're talking about is us pursuing committed cross-cultural community. And every single word there matters. Committed cross-cultural community. What, what does that mean, right? In a real sense, this is already who we are. I mean, notice what Paul says. Paul says, you are. He uses the present tense. This is who you are. Just like in your personal relationship with God, you are already in Christ. And so your identity of who you are in Christ is already true about you. That's the way that God sees you. Even though it's not exactly how your life is living right now, that's how God sees you. And it's the same with our corporate identity. That when God sees His church, he already sees a cross-cultural community. 
He already sees a family that, that goes beyond cultural barriers. He already sees a family that's made up of rich and poor, black and white. He already sees a family that's made up of Asian and Hispanic, Democrat and Republican, Presbyterian and Pentecostal, single and married, and every other kind of diversity and, and cross-cultural reality you can imagine. God sees it. And what we're saying is we want to live that out. What we're saying as a church is we want to live out what's already true about the body of Christ is that we are a family made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue. But listen, there's a word in there that matters. Committed. Committed. And that language is intentional. Cross-cultural community won't happen accidentally. There's a reason it doesn't happen commonly. It's never quick, it's never easy, it's never cheap, it takes commitment, it takes people who decide that they are willing for the sake of the gospel to pursue and endure. Right? You have to endure hard conversations where you're tired of telling your story over and over and over again. You're going to have to endure moments where you have to confess and admit that I've got racism in my heart. You're going to have to deal with hard conversations where you listen to someone's story and, and you're not sure whether you should believe it or, or trust it or whatever because it doesn't match your story. You're going to have to endure through situations where things that don't matter to you have to matter. Right? That's what it means to endure. And so if you're desiring community at Strong Tower to, uh, to be easy, you're sorely mistaken. This is probably the hardest church to have friends in. I'm telling you, if we're really cross-cultural. I mean, if, if, if you want to be monocultural, it's just like every other church. But if you really want to have cross-cultural relationships, it's going to be the hardest church you've ever been a part of. Because unity isn't uniformity. Oneness is not sameness. Sameness says in order for me to be your friend or to have a relationship with you, you need to be like me. You might look different than me, but you, know, you vote like me, you talk like me, you listen to music like me, you eat food like me, whatever. You, we have the same culture, just a different color. No, that's not cross-cultural. That's monocultural. Different colors, same culture. What we are after at Strong Tower is something, I'm going to tell you, is just a, it's a supernatural miracle because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people who don't have things in common. You might have some things in common, but you've got a lot that's not in common. And you're going to cross over into someone else's culture intentionally and build a relationship. That takes commitment. That means it's not going to happen in a month. It's not going to happen in six months. It may not happen in six years. But it's going to take the daily grind of saying, I'm going to pursue to live out what God has already made true about His church yes. for His glory. Yes. And you might be asking, how in the world could we do that? 
Great question. There's only, way, there's only one way that both can actually happen. There's only one way that you can have an identity in Christ that's strong and secure, not based on what you do. And there's only way, one way that we can live out an identity as a corporate body in a cross-cultural relationship without killing one another. It's the cross. It's the cross. Look, look back at verse 14. Look at what Paul says. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, down to 16. It says, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. Paul's saying there was hostility between us and God, and there's hostility between us and our neighbor, and there's this physical reality that represented that in their Uh, in their context. It was this literal wall of hostility. In the temple, there was a wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. And then there was a curtain that separated the people from God. Literally, the temple was set up in a way that showed in a physical form the division and the hostility. And then uh, archaeologists found in 1871 one of these uh, pillars of the temple that had an inscription on it that said this. It said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade, that's the wall, which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. I mean, that's the kind of, of hostility and anger and hate that existed between one another and also was representative and symbolic of our relationship with God. We were divided from God, divided from people, and yet Paul says here, he says, He Himself, Jesus Himself, is our peace. And he uses this strange, ironic phrase. He says that Jesus has killed the hostility. I mean, it doesn't sound very peaceful, does it? That Jesus came to kill the hostility. What in the world is He talking about? It is a perfect example of what He's talking about. Because I think the world wants peace that's unbiblical. We want peace that's flimsy and fake and shallow. We, we want peace that's not, unbib- or that's not biblical. We, we want this peace that, that's mushy and, and it's, it's easy, it's, it's tolerant. But real biblical peace requires death. Think about it. Real peace creates honest unity that deals with the sin that caused the hostility. You can't have real peace if no one talks about what happened. You can't have real peace unless you move past the talking and there's a payment. Right? That, that's any relationship. Any relationship you've ever had, if, if two people are going to have reconciliation, it requires a payment. Reconciliation requires restitution. You, you can't just move on. You can't just look over it. And it's the same with God, right? When we sin against God, God doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to forget about it and pretend like it never happened. It was a really long time ago. He says it has to be dealt with. Sin requires the shedding of blood. It has to be paid for. And so what the gospel says is, if we're going to create real peace, Jesus has to do it. 
Jesus, the only way that it could happen is Jesus would kill the hostility by being killed himself. Only the cross, listen, only the cross kills hostility and then creates real unity. Jesus, as he was with his disciples on the the night before he was betrayed, they were enjoying their final meal together. It's often called the Last Supper. And and he's with his disciples and and they've been together for three years. I mean, Jesus, one-on-one, discipling these dudes. What are they doing? They're, They're arguing. They're complaining. They're fighting over who's sitting where. They're, they're saying, I'm the greatest. No, you're, you're nothing. And they're fighting for status and pushing each other to the side. They're, they're making sure that they get in the right position so that their life is thriving and flourishing and the other guy is down at the bottom. They're just like us. There's no oneness. There's no unity. They're hostile towards each other. And Jesus is sitting at the table right before he makes his way to the cross watching his disciples live out who... We are today. And then he begins to pray. He begins to pray. And it's often called the high priestly prayer in John 17. And he begins to pray for the disciples and he tells them, or prays to the Father, praying that that God would, would be glorified in them, praying that God would protect them, praying that God would use them as he sends them out, praying all these things. And then he begins to pray for us. And it must have been one of the most powerful moments in in the disciples' experience with Jesus because they're hearing him pray and he's looking into the halls of history and he's praying for the people who are to come, the people right here in this building, the people who are going to live just like these disciples 2,000 years later, fighting with animosity and hostility. And this is what he prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That they may all be one. Jesus looked ahead into history and he he saw our division. He saw our hatred. He saw all of our hostility. And when he prayed for our oneness, he knew that it would cost him everything. He knew in order to bring us to be one, one with God and one with one another, that it would tear him apart. And so he'd be led to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter. He was delivered over to the Roman soldiers who tore stripes down the skin of his back. He was crowned with thorns that literally split apart the flesh of God. He was nailed with holes in his hands and feet. He was pierced in the side after he breathed his last for us. But none of these, none of these literal tearings apart were as bad as the spiritual tearing apart that he experienced. Where Jesus, who had been united with his Father for all eternity, hung on the cross and he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? He experienced the separation and the division from his Father for the first time because he stood in our place. He stood in our place. He's taking upon himself our guilt and our shame, our violence, our corruption, our hatred, our fears. He took our place in the midst of the hostility of God, the wrath that was towards us. The sin that separated us couldn't be ignored or forgotten. It had to be paid for. There's this infinite debt that that created this infinite divide, and it required an infinite God. An infinite God. The perfect Son. He was killed so that we could be 
forgiven forever. In killing the hostility, he was creating a new unity. It was all to bring us near. It was all to create a new family, a new family from every tribe, a new family from every tongue, a new family from every nation, a new family that would bring him glory for eternity, a new family that would confound the world with our love across barriers. A new family that would confuse the politicians because we love across party. A new family that would seem to the outside world an impossibility because it is. But God, God can do the impossible. He did already. He did. And I want to tell you as we close that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who gave everything for you to be one. For you to be one with God, for you to be one with each other. He gave everything. He was split apart. He was torn from his father. So that you could know God. So that you could be together. And so at Strong Tower, we're committed to that. We're committed to you living out your identity in the gospel that your relationship with God would flourish in the freedom and love of the grace that we have in the Son of Jesus. And we're committed to this cross-cultural community that we would live out the gospel in our love for our neighbor. That's who He's called us, or what He's called us to, because it's who we are. It's who we are in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You again, confound the wise. You do the unthinkable. Lord, even as we were discussing in our grow class this morning the story of the Good Samaritan, over and over you're preaching and teaching and living out that story, that you would move towards us in our brokenness, in our neediness, and we realize sooner or later that we are the man in the ditch. We are not the hero of the story. We're not the one who comes to save others. We're the one lying dead in our sin, full of hatred, full of suspicion, full of every evil and vile sin, desperate for your healing, desperate for your mercy. And so, God, we ask that you would do the miraculous in us. Help us to live out who we are. Help us to become who you've already made us in the gospel, that we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.